Welcome to the Grace for This City podcast. We're helping you turn your cities upside down. Hey, I'm your host, Justin Goff. Stay tuned. We got a great show for you today. All right. Good morning, everybody out there in the, what do we call it? The Podverse podcast. I don't know. You're probably watching me right now, too. By the way, thank you, though, for tuning in to the podcast today, wherever you are at in the nations. And uh, join with me in believing for the fulfillment of the word of the Lord. He said that our ministry would touch every nation on the face of the earth. Yeah, and I'm not trying to sound arrogant or whatever. It's quite humbling, actually, when you think about it. But uh, we've been in over 155 nations. I need to check up because we've been adding several nations to that list. And um, so, you know what? We're just obeying God. We just want to get the word out there. I believe somebody somewhere is going to hear what they need to hear at the right time. We're just adding our voice. We're just giving Holy Spirit more uh, more to work with. There's thousands, tens of thousands of phenomenal ministries all over the world. We're all doing our part, friends, to reach the one that's far from him. Hallelujah. So join me in that. Let's believe God for that. Doesn't mean we're special. Just We're just obeying. Nothing special. Hallelujah. We're just obedient folk, just like you. Hallelujah. Uh, remember, the Bible says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. We just want to obey. And one way we are obeying is uh, producing these CDs and mailing them to people at no charge. So if you know somebody, this is no apologies for being the church. If you know somebody that um, would be blessed to receive this free gift, send us an email at hello at gracecitychurch.tv and we'll get it mailed out to them at no charge. Hallelujah. And I want to say thank you to our partners that are making that possible. I want to invite you to participate in a project we got going on. We're calling it the Studio Project. That's right. We have a facility on our property that the Lord said build three studio sets inside of it. And uh, one of the sets is like, um, you know, a couch uh, couch and chair interview style. You've seen seen those type of shows where we can sit down and have guests on and discuss various biblical topics. The other set is an expanded podcast set. If you're watching me, you can see a little bit of the studio that we use for the podcast now. We want to expand that, add a few more things to it over there. And then lastly, uh, the last studio set, be kind of like a headshot at a desk type thing. We're calling it Equippers Academy and Equippers University. So we can take people from the milk of the word, get them started there, and bring them all the way up into spiritual maturity as they begin to feast on the meat of the word. We can do that in that arrangement there. So if you want to participate in that, we invite you to go to our website, gracecitychurch.tv. That's gracecitychurch.tv forward slash give. In the drop-down menu, select Studio Project. All right. The last several weeks, we've been uh, kind of in like a little series here. I've been talking about women in ministry. And so this will kind of be part three of that series. And I want to shift the thought just a little bit. Uh, I think in the first two sessions, we've covered pretty, pretty clearly, if you ask me, uh, probably you're going to, Still have a few that still want to argue it, but I think the Bible's laid out pretty clear that women are used in ministry. We found out that women are called prophetess. So he's addressing the offices there. So we found a woman in, in the Bible that didn't just prophesy. She was actually called a prophetess. Uh, and then several uh, examples where 
uh, women have been called into other offices and roles as well. And uh, again, we laid out that in Christ, there's neither male nor female. It doesn't mean that you lose your gender. That's ridiculous. Don't, don't go there. But what it does mean is that certain distinctions uh, are not based on being male or female. We find out that in Christ Jesus, the appointments and the anointings are now based on head body roles. And so it is very real. It is possible. It's happening right now that there are women that are called into headship anointings and there are men called into body appointments and anointings. And so we submit to one another based on the God-defined relational aspects. Now, he's already defined the marriage arrangement. He said the husband is the head of the wife. And so there, the husband, who is male, would be the head over the wife, who is female, and the household, or the, or the oikos, in that arrangement. But then we see outside of that predefined relationship then we just fall back onto well, wh- what has God ordained? How, how has God appointed this? And so women can definitely be leaders. They can be head. If they're a team leader, then they're the head over a team. The team is the body. Uh, if they're a business owner, then they're an employer. They're the head, the employees, the body of the business would be the, um, you know, the, the submitted element to that. And so people get all mixed up because we don't take time to rightly divide the scriptures. So the last several weeks, we've been covering that. If you haven't listened to those or watched that, go back, catch up with us there. But let's go on to uh, another aspect of this. And uh, this is based on a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And this is a pretty controversial passage, unnecessarily so, but nonetheless, it is. And again, I think as we get into this, you'll begin to see how unnecessarily complex people have made this. But again, it goes back to we have not yet yielded to the mystery that the Bible's trying to reveal to us here. Now, the question that Brother Hagen, uh, my spiritual father, in the book that he wrote called The Woman Question, this is chapter five, that would be what page is this? That's page 45 in The Woman Question by Kenneth e. Hagen. Here's the title must women have their heads covered in church? Again, this may not directly have to do with women in ministry, but yet it's still a thought that is combined with how a lot of traditional, um, uh, how women have been treated traditionally because of these misunderstood passages. All right, so let's jump into this. Here's the King James, all right? But I would have you know that the head of every man in is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Let me pause there for just a second, because I'm telling you, what's going to help us as we are navigating how the Bible talks about man, woman, husband, wife, is we find out that the head represents the headship anointing of, of Christ for all heads everywhere, and the wife uh, represents the body appointment and anointing for all body callings, appointments, and anointings, the body of Christ for everyone everywhere. You understand that uh, every dude is metaphorically called the bride of Christ. It's not sexual. This is why some people avoid this topic because they sexualize everything. It's not sexual. It's a metaphor. It, it is a role. It's an appointment, and there is a posture or an outworking associated with that mystery. And so Christ is the head. He's the husband. In fact, the King James calls the father the husbandman. Okay, that is that word means cultivation. So the head, the husband, the head, 
is anointed to cultivate that which is in the body. All right, strip away all the sexuality that gets added to this. It's so stupid. Uh, let's look at the mystery. Right here, Paul sets out to reveal a mystery to us, and we get all caught up in hair length, veils, and head coverings, and we make that the epitome. And I think at the very beginning of this, you're going to see as you're beginning to use the decipher that whenever the Bible talks about husband, he's talking about the head. When he talks about the wife, he's talking about the body, and it can be interchangeable because you got men, males are not the head everywhere, females are not the body everywhere, and we totally screw this up because we don't recognize the mystery. All right, so right here, right in the beginning, we see the intent of the thing. Even Jesus has a head right here. Jesus is saying, learn of me because I'm the head in some relationships and I'm the body in others. Here he says, I'm the body of my headship, which is the heavenly father, who, by the way, the Bible calls uh, the husbandman. <laughs> Hallelujah. Oh, thank you, Jesus, for helping us. Come on, somebody say he's helping you. <laughs> he's helping me. He's helping me. And man, I'm telling you, women have caught the brunt of false doctrine and twistings of scriptures, and they've been totally mistreated unnecessarily. All right. So he says, the head of man is Christ. The head of woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesies with her head uncovered, dishonors her head. For that is even as if she were shaved. Uh, King James shaven is, is even she had her head shaved. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head. For as he is the image and the glory of God. But the woman is the glory of God man, let me pause right there. What is Paul trying to get over to them? Uh, in 1 Corinthians, or is it 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I think it is, there's this phrase called the gospel of the glory, the good news of the glory. Who's the beneficiary of the glory? The body is the beneficiary of the glory of its head. You got to understand this great mystery that we've been united to, to Christ, but a head needed something that would mirror or reflect. You can go to Genesis 2, find this right out, where woman was taken from the side of man, bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. That is the body of Christ. Come on, somebody. And we found, found out that the Hebrew word there meant mirror image or opposite or reflected image. So here in the New Testament, Paul was tasked, among others maybe, to begin to reveal the mystery of the glory of the body of Christ Jesus. The glory, come on, of Jesus is his body. The body is the mirror or the reflection of that glory. This is exactly what Paul's trying to get over to them here. And so many people have screwed this up. We've made it about head coverings and hair length. When the entire mystery was about who is the recipient of the glory. Here he's saying man, mankind, uh, or the body and the bride of Christ is the recipient of the glory. And that body should not cover itself because if you cover if you cover that then the reflection of the head cannot be mirrored in it and now he's saying follow the mystery use your decipher okay 
husband, head, wife, body. He's saying that if the wife, who is the glory of her husband, covers her head, it is a dishonor. Or we, he, she's saying that this, that if she does cover her head, she's recognizing her submission here. So listen, you've got to follow along with what the ultimate revelation is here. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it is a shame for a woman to be shorn, let her be covered. <laughs> Don't get confused. It's not confusing. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head because he's the image and the glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For if man is not of the woman, uh, for the man, excuse me, is not of the woman, but the woman of the man, neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Listen, the body for the head the body for the head. Understand this. It's not good that Jesus should be alone. The Godhead. Psalm 8. What is man that you are so mindful of him that you've create, you've placed him, you've created him below the Godhead? What's so mindful of man? That man will be the body of Christ Jesus. This is what he's talking about here. What an honor that the woman would get to represent the body of Christ for everyone everywhere and be the recipient of the glory of her head, her husband. For this uh, cause ought the woman to have uh, power on her head because of the angels. Never, nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. He said, judge in yourselves. Is it appropriate that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Now, he's talking about the wife here. Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a shame unto him. This was a cultural thing. But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither do the churches of God. Okay, let's get into this. Brother Hagin says, A hasty reading of this great text would lead one to believe that Paul laid upon all women everywhere— and for all time, the command to wear a veil or to keep their heads covered in church services. Many conscientious women today fear to remove their hats in church lest they violate this passage. That's tradition, friends. Had nothing to do with hats. The crux of the matter hinges on this question. Is it binding everywhere and for all time? Let's examine the scripture carefully. For if it binds us now, we should obey it. Upon what does Paul base his argument for women covering their heads in a religious service? First, he does not say it is irreverent, nor does he say it is displeasing to God. If he had, there would have been no escape from this command. In fact, in chapter 2, we discuss what Paul said about husbands being the head of their wives. Listen, this is what he's saying. He's referring it back to the ultimate mystery here. Don't miss the mystery over traditions of man. He's saying this is the basis of Paul's argument. Now, here's what the Weymouth translation says, 1 Corinthians 11. He says, I would have you know, however... That of every man, Christ is the head, and that the head of woman is her husband, and that the head of Christ is God. A man who wears a veil when praying or prophesies dishonors his head. But a woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for she, exact, for she is exactly the same as a woman who is shaven. Now, you got to understand, in their culture, that was a real no-no. Um, if a woman will not wear a veil, let her also cut off her hair. But since it's a dishonor to a woman to have her hair cut off or to be shaved, let her wear a veil. You understand what he's saying here? He's saying a married woman who has rejected 
the God anointed and appointed headship in her life, he's saying it's as if the same thing as a woman would be out in public with her head shaved. Now, in just a minute, we're going to talk about uh, culturally what it meant in those days for a woman to be out in public with her head shaved. It means she was either a prostitute or a harlot. It, it, it was an ultimate sign of total disrespect, dishonor, and insubordination. Now, he's saying that a man is submitted to his head. Any man anywhere is just as submitted to his headship as a woman or a wife is submitted to her headship. No man escapes the rules associated with the submitted role of the body. Uh, Remember when Jesus encountered the centurion soldier in, in the book of Matthew, Jesus marveled at this guy's understanding of authority and how that was connected to his faith. He says, I'm a man under authority, meaning I have a head over me. And he says, whatever I'm told to do, I do. And then he says, I've got people under me. Whatever I tell them to do, they do. This is this is what he's saying here. He's saying uh, that a person, whether it's male or female, here in, the, in this case, it's wives, but somebody who totally disrespects and dishonors their covering, it may be, it, you might as well be the same as having your head shaved, which was a sign culturally of total debauchery and uh, insubordination and just nastiness now here here he goes on to say this is the weymouth if a woman will not wear a veil she might as well cut her hair off but since it's a dishonor for a woman in your society to have her hair cut off and to be shaved then she needs to wear a veil for a man ought not to have a veil on his head since he's the image and the glory of god while woman is the glory of man in our country, we instinctively sense the impropriety of men covering their heads in a religious service. I've been in services where a man would come in and sit down with his hat still on, and one of the ushers would go and ask him to take it off. Among the Jews, however, it's, it's the opposite custom. In Jewish synagogues, even now, men are required to keep their heads covered. When we visited the uh, Muslim holy place in Jerusalem, we pulled off our shoes and left them at the door. In Muslim countries, the worshipers remove uh, not their hats, but their shoes. The Lord said to Moses, uh, Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereupon thou stands is holy ground. Nothing was said about his headgear. Why then does Paul protest against men praying or prophesying with their heads covered? This will come out clearly later, but suffice it to say here that the veil or covering was an acknowledgement um, that somebody... Uh, was visibly present uh, under their head. It was an acknowledgement visibly that somebody recognized headship. Paul said a woman who prayed or prophesied with her head uncovered dishonored her head. He didn't say she dishonored God, but her head, her husband, who was present. The veil was a symbol of subjection to her husband. So thoroughly, um, so thoroughly was it recognized as a badge setting forth uh, the wife's private and subordinate position that a significant right in marriage was the assuming of the veil. Marcus Dodd said this, the laying aside of the veil was therefore an expression on the part of Christian women that their being assumed as members of Christ's body raised them out of the position of deference and subordination. This is the significant uh, this is the significance of the bridal bridal veil still worn at weddings. And the custom of taking the veil lingers in the ceremony of those becoming a nun even. 
The Greek word exousia, translated power in verse 10, is also translated uh, as authority, liberty, and in the plural as authorities and potentates. Let's paraphrase that verse, which sounds so strange to our ears like this. For this reason, because of the facts stated in verse 8 and 9, ought the wife to have a sign of her husband's authority, a covering on her head because of the angels. Here again, it is not a woman question, but a husband and wife question. Out of deference or honor for Christ, the man should not honor his head. But out of honor for her husband, a wife should cover her head. And also out of deference for the angels who were recognized as, uh, as present at public worship and who would be grieved with any disorder. A.S. Worrell says, The angels are ministering spirits, and as being present in their ministry, they would be shocked if a woman should get out of her place and attempt to assume lordship over her husband. In Bible times, more regard was paid to the presence and ministry of angels than it is today. It might have a wholesome effect on our assemblies and prayer groups if we were aware of the presence of these heavenly messengers. They are present, and the Word of God says so. In the church covenant, familiar to Baptists, is found this expression. We do now in the presence of God, angels, and in this assembly most solemnly and joyfully enter into this covenant, recognizing that the angels themselves are present. Now, the next reason Paul assigns for women appearing in church with, head, with heads covered is out of uh, deference for the social customs of the day. Notice what he says in verse 16, that we have no such custom. But if it be a shame for a woman to be shaven, let her be covered. Again, he's appealing to the naturalness or the social customs of their day. Paul was saying that to appear in the public church service without her head covered amounted to the same thing as appearing with her head shaved. This was contrary to the prevailing custom in Corinth. Uh, one historian said this, among the Greeks, it was a universal custom for women to appear in public with their heads covered, commonly with the corner of their shawl drawn over the head like a hood. Now, accordingly, Paul does not insist on the face being covered, as in Eastern countries, but only the head. This covering of the head could be dispensed with only in places where they were secluded from public view. It was therefore the recognized badge of seclusion. It was the badge which proclaimed she was private and not a public person, finding her duties at home, not abroad, in the household, not in the city. Both sexes looked upon the veil as the truest and most treasured emblem of a woman's position. All right, now I'm going to pause there. Again, do you understand what's going on here? For a woman to have her head covered was a sign of her submission to her husband. For a woman to have her head uncovered or shaved meant that she despised or, or didn't honor the headship her husband provided. Now, again, when Paul is laying this out, it has nothing to do. The end game has nothing to do with head covering or hair length. It has everything to do with who is the beneficiary of the glory. Come on. And are we recognizing, do we yield to the honored position, the 
appointed and anointed position of body or do we dishonor and disrespect that? Because if you dishonor that, you're not going to be the recipient of the glory of your headship. All right. Now he goes on to say, in our day and in our land, this is not the custom. A woman does not appear to be more modest if she wears a veil or a hood on her head in public. True woman, womanly modesty is recognized now as much by the frank, unassuming manner, the open countenance, the sincere look of the eyes, as it was in the days of Paul and Corinth by the wearing of the veil. Virtuous married women wore on their heads such a badge of subjection to their husbands. A woman with head uncovered appearing in the church in Paul's time in Corinth would have, been, would have scandalized the church. Strangers would have thought such a woman was an immoral woman of the city. Such conduct would reflect on her and on her husband. It would have dishonored her head, her husband. We have our social laws and customs too here in the States. At the turn of the century right here in North America, it was a custom in most, in most churches for the men to sit on one side and the women on the other. I've been in the ministry nearly 50 years at the time of writing this book. And a number of years ago, I preached in churches where this custom still prevailed. A man didn't dare sit on the woman's side, and a woman didn't dare sit on the men's side. It was their custom. You have no biblical support for that, but nonetheless. And you'd, be, and you'd better abide by it, or they, were th- or they would think you were out of line. At a much earlier date, the history of the First Baptist Church in Boston tells of an incident where the deacons were were outside to confer as to what should be done with the bridegroom who had come in with his bride and was sitting with her on the woman's side, this newlywed couple. He's like, man, I, we're just, we're freshly married. I'm, I'm going to stick to her like glue. They decided drastic action must be taken. So they went down the aisle behind him, grabbed him by the neck, and threw him out of the church. Are you kidding me? He had violated their custom. Donald G., by the way, this is a great spiritual um, writer, influencer. He's passed on now, but you should get a hold of his stuff. Donald G. was a great pastor and Bible teacher. He served as a member of the Executive Presbytery of the Assemblies of God in Great Britain and Ireland. He travailed extensively, excuse me, he traveled extensively in Pentecost, uh, Pentecostal works throughout Europe, Africa, Australia, the Orient, and North America. In writing of his early experiences back in the late 1920s and 30s, he told of arriving in a certain country where he was to conduct a teaching mission. The missionary was not there to meet him. He had sent in his place one of the natives who spoke English. Just wait here. The missionary will be here. He was unavoidably detained, the native said. G said that it was quite cool, and since they were waiting out in the open with no place to sit or take cover, he was getting cold. I got pretty cool, G said, so I walked around and stomped my feet to get the blood circulating and to try to keep warm. I walked up and down until I warmed up a little, and as I walked, I began to whistle a religious tune. Then I noticed the native was staring at me out of the corner of his eye. Finally, this native said, I wouldn't do that if I were you. Do what? Whistle, said the native. What's wrong with whistling? 
Well, in this country, it is considered vulgar, uh, vulgar to whistle. If any of the congregation heard you, no one would come to hear you preach. Now, let me pause there because you're thinking, well, that's silly. Well, yes, it is. A lot of traditions that aren't biblically based are silly, but nonetheless, they're traditions. And sometimes people are trapped, they're caught in these traditions. G went on to write, I had to abide by their custom while I was there. I soon learned, and as I traveled over the world, I would look with anticipation to the next country to find out what I could do and what I couldn't do. If you're to be an effective witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, you pretty much have to abide by people's customs. I'm certain that if we had such a custom now of the wife's wearing a veil, it would be unwise to ignore it. If people generally considered it immodest, it would certainly be wise for those seeking to advance the cause of Christ to conform to the custom. A breach of the unwritten laws of society has rendered the ministry of many a preacher fruitless. At the close of World War II, one of the leaders of an American Pentecostal denomination went to Germany to meet with the leaders of the Pentecostal movement there. They had a small banquet-type meeting to discuss plans for establishing revival centers. The, uh, the American said, It was their custom to drink a small glass of wine before meals. They weren't wine-bibbers or given to getting drunk. It was just their custom. But it wasn't our custom, and I was rather bound by my conscience. What am I going to do, I pondered. Finally, the Spirit of God said to me, The Word says to eat and drink whatever is set before you and don't ask questions. So I sipped along on the wine. About that time, he said, the leader of the German Pentecostal group leaned over and whispered in his ear. This is what they said. They tell me that some of the saints in America drink coffee. He said to himself, of course I drink coffee. But he said, I found myself turning to her and saying, sister, I'm sorry to say, that they do. <laughs> While he was there, he couldn't drink any coffee whatsoever. It would violate their custom. I like the way Weymouth's translation says it. But if anyone is inclined to be contentious on the point, we have no such custom, nor have the churches of God. That's verse 16. In other words, Paul is saying that the church is abiding by the custom of the land. Paul makes one more appeal to our sense of naturalness. He's saying he's appealing to the customs. Uh, this is 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen and 15. Let me read it out of the New King James. He says, Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? Where, what nature teaches that? He's talking about the native customs of the day. Verse 15, But if a woman has long hair, see, he's appealing to their, 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 their customs. He's appealing to their culture. He says, but if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. I want to see if I can find this note really quick. I want to read something to you. Uh, this is historian Sarah Rudin. She says, respectable Greek and Roman women traditionally wore concealing veils in public. Marriage 
and widowhood were the chief things that a veil signaled. The veil was the flag of female virtue, status, and security. Who was not, we're talking about in Roman culture, who, uh, and, and Greek societies, who was not allowed to wear veils? Slaves and prostitutes were forbidden to wear veils. Additionally, veils served as protection. Covered hair in public represented modesty, honor, status, and protection for a woman. And an uncovered head in public disgraced a woman and put her sexually at risk. In other words, women who did not veil were sexually available, uh, while those who wore veils were, quote, off limits. Meaning if you messed with this woman that was wearing a veil, then you were most definitely messing with her husband, her family, and the respected status that she carried in that particular group. Uh, another historian wrote this, the veil was a sign of submission to another person in the thinking of that culture. A Christian man, therefore, was not to pray with his head covered because it would disgrace or dishonor his head, Jesus. The reason for this was that only Christ was the head over a man or another head as the only mediator between him and God, any other man, priest, or institution. His uncovered head signified this fact. You understand what they're saying here? So listen, this is what he was saying, that uh, naturally speaking, historically, culturally, like in the society of Corinth, in that time period, there were such customs of the day that were very normal, very natural, and very common. Uh, and they prevailed in that particular society. This is what he's appealing to here in verse 14. Again, he's not making the issue about veils. Or all of us today would be wrong in, the, in our societies, in most societies around the world. If women came in and they weren't wearing head coverings or if they cut their hair shorter than the shoulder or whatever. I mean, who, 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 who defines which length is appropriate and which length is inappropriate, but he's appealing to the naturalness, the natural customs of their day. Again, try, not trying to make it about hair length, not trying to make it about coverings. He's trying to get over them the ultimate revelation about the head and submission to that head and the glory that is reflected when one yields to their headship. That's the mystery Paul's trying to get to them. He says, but if a woman has long hair, it's her glory for her hair is given to her for a covering. All right, let's get back to this here. Uh, let's see here. Notice again that Paul didn't say, uh, oh, let me go back here. So uh, according to that verse, here's what uh, Marcus Dodd comments. He says, by nature, woman is endowed with a symbol of modesty and retirement. The veil, which signifies her devotion to her duties as, as being a submitted wife or body member, uh, is merely the artificial continuation of her natural gift of hair. The long hair of the Greek um, uh, was accepted by the people as an indication of effeminate and luxurious living suitable for women and unsuitable for men. Again, we talked about how here in Greek and Roman culture, 
you know, if a man came in with a hat on, he was dishonoring his headship. But in Jewish culture, you can't even approach the Western wall, the Wailing Wall, the prayer wall. You, you cannot even approach it without a hat on. So again, it has nothing to do ultimately with the covering itself. It was simply a reflection of what was going on in the heart. And then Paul appealed to the custom of the day to try and reveal to them the ultimate, the ultimate, the ultimate mystery. Notice again that Paul didn't, didn't say God said it. He said, does not even nature or culture. He goes on to, uh, to prove this point. Small wars have been fought and churches disrupted over this very question. Does the Bible teach that women should have long hair? How long is long and how short is short? Brother Hagin said, I pastored for 12 years and somehow I got by in certain places, even though my wife didn't have uh, long hair like the other women did. They would take their long hair and twist it up and, uh, tightly on their heads in a knot. But my wife's head was more covered than theirs. No matter how long their hair was, it didn't cover their heads. My wife's head was always covered. Paul appealed, uh, uh, appealed to naturalness. When a woman's hair is longer than men ordinarily wear their hair, then you can tell she's a woman. We can tell from pictures of certain periods in history that men wore their hair longer than we ordinarily do today. But at the same time, women wore theirs a little longer than that. The men's hair was still short by the standards of the day. I would say this. I don't think it's good for any Christian man or boy to be the least bit effeminate. The word of God speaks against it. The wise man in Ecclesiastes says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the duty of man. So let's sum up Paul's points. He does not say it is irreverent for a woman to appear with heads uncovered. He doesn't even insinuate it. He does not say it displeases God. He does say, though, that it is a custom, and it is wise to abide by the custom. He appeals to naturalness. Paul dealt with principles of universal application, but at times, um, but at times and customs have been altered in regard to feminine properties. And Brother Hagin says, I see nothing in this passage to present uh, to prevent women from appearing in public with heads uncovered here in our country. But if you were in another place and that was the custom, I would encourage you to abide by it. Hallelujah. We'll stop right there. And uh, uh, again, these, these are things that some people continue to wrestle through and they continue to make it an issue. Uh, I, I like this thought that Brother Hagen brings out right there at the very end, that men should be clearly men. Women should be clearly women. And if there's ever a question on this particular person of we can't tell what they are, whether it's a man that you can't distinguish as a man or a woman, they're so uh, his uh, appearance, his uh the way he presents himself, the way he, uh, you know, carries himself. If you cannot make a clear distinction between if he's a man or a woman, then there's something off. Same with a woman. If it's obvious that we cannot tell the difference if she's a woman or a man, then there's something that is off there. Um, it, it is glorious 
to represent who we were created to be. We should not be ashamed of who God created us to be. If he created you male, we are not ashamed of that. If he created you female, we are not ashamed of that. And there are stark distinctions which should be celebrated and, and honored. We should not be confused as to who we were created to be. I want to add that thought in there because when it really comes down to it, uh, th those lines should not be crossed. Those lines should not be blurred. Women are representing something for all members of the body of Christ everywhere, and that should be an honorable role and distinction, and it should be played well. Same with the amen. We represent something um, uh, uh, you know, uh, in Christ. We would represent, as husbands say, we, rep we represent that, and that role should be played well. We should not uh, try and be something that we're not. All right, let's wrap it up right there. Hope you got something out of that. Hallelujah. If you have any questions, if you have any comments, let us know. Send us an email at hello at gracecitychurch.tv. Oh, man. Praise the Lord. Listen, I want to encourage you to get a hold of a copy of this book written by Kenneth e. Hagan. It's called The Woman Question, and it's a very practical approach to navigating these scriptures. Also, I would encourage you, you can go to our web website, gracecitychurch.tv, or go to our Facebook page or YouTube channel and look up all of the messages that I've done on the head and body. It'll help to clear up some of these things as well. Listen, if we can pray for you, join you in prayer, it would be our honor to do so. You can call us 870-741-9099. Leave a message, somebody will get right back with you. Or you can send your prayer request to hello at gracecitychurch.tv. That's hello at gracecitychurch.tv. All right, friends, we're out of time on this podcast. We're so grateful that you join us. And until next time, my friends, be blessed. <laughs>